Hello friends, welcome to another episode of Too Scared to Sleep. My name is Dylan, and over there is uh, somebody. Who are you? The guy who drove all the way to Houston with you so you could pick up your motorcycle. That's who I am. Alright, that's fair. I won't give you any shit for that. Yes, uh, we did go pick up my new motorcycle! Oh, we ride at dawn operation we ride at dawn is complete baby oh my god oh my goodness that's all that's all life is about now that is all it's about the only thing that matters right now is just the ride Mm -hmm. it really is i mean it really we were already like that you were like that i was like that then i broke my leg and i wasn't like that as much (laughs) and then we fixed my bike but we are fully engaged now Oh, yes. Yeah, 100%. We drove all the way to Houston to go pick up this motorcycle, and then we brought it back, and, oh, man, yesterday from when we were... Yeah, so we picked it up on Saturday, um, and then Sunday, which was yesterday for us, uh, I spent the whole day riding with Jake. Um, We went all through River Road, went down 306, all kinds of funky-ass places, and then I waited till... I got home and I ate dinner and then I immediately went right back out and started writing again. Nice. It's just so comfortable and loud and powerful and I love it. It's so good. Your bike is so loud. It's really loud. Like so loud that I couldn't even hear my bike next to your bike. Which Which I thought was pretty funny. It's fine. It's whatever. I need to get a new exhaust for my bike anyway because it's pretty quiet. It is pretty quiet. Um, I got up on the interstate for the first time riding yesterday. Yes, you did. And I'm so proud of you. Which wasn't as scary as you think because from from one standpoint, first of all, I have a bike that's fast enough to handle the, handle being on the interstate. You obviously, your bike is twice the twice the bike that mine is when it comes to cubic centimeters. So yours is 650? 650. Oh, yeah. Mine's almost exactly. <laughs> and yours is almost exactly bigger than mine. Anyway, but it's it's fast enough on the interstate. And when you think about it, the, the truth about it is that if you're going to get into a motorcycle wreck, it's probably going to happen either in one of two places, either in a curve or at an intersection. And guess what? Two things do not exist on interstates. Curves and intersections. Curves and intersections. Yeah, so we were, buddy. we were fine. And I'm like, oh, shit, I could do this every day. Yeah. I could do this all day. I could do this all day. But once you get, once you actually get on there and you start getting some power in it, and for those that don't know, we live in Texas, so everybody speeds all the time, just oh, yeah. constantly on every road. But getting out actually onto the interstate, being able to get some real speed in it, that's some fun shit. And when Jake got onto the interstate, that was my first time getting onto the interstate with my new bike. Um, I was used to it on my old one, so I wasn't really worried about it, but it felt nice being able to get some power behind it. It just, I could tell it wanted to go fast. That power between your legs. Yeah. Oh, it is, is a delight. I mean, people talk about, oh, the, that car, that truck is an extension of, no, this bike is an extension of you and the power that you have between your legs. Oh yeah. 100%. Anyway, it was really funny. Um, going to pick up your bike was the f- was only the second time. I, I said it was the first time. It was the second time I'd ever been in a motorcycle dealership. The first was when I went to took my took the motorcycle course at the Harley dealership. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I didn't think about that. There were a lot of guys who walked in there who were obviously not. They were not bikers. Uh-huh. Not that we're bikers, but at least we have motorcycles and we I mean, dress appropriately for that. There's guys in there with sandals, with those stupid boat shoes. Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's a lot of the people that go into Harley shops, especially. Oh, God, yes. Um, but yeah, any motorcycle 
dealership really um but yeah i mean the people that go out there in like no gear maybe a like the cheapest helmet they could find on amazon and fucking shorts and sandals and sleeveless shirts or like just regular t-shirts squids they just want to get on a bike and go and say no you're gonna fall and all of your skin will be gone yeah that's a bad idea guys that's a real bad idea all the gear all the time all the gear all the time not only that there's this um i've never i've never shared this with you before oh no (laughs) i have this uh, philosophy in my mind it is the john mcclain readiness score (laughs) okay okay in case you don't know john mcclain is the protagonist of the die hard movie series now those movies obviously jumped the shark after like die hard 3 probably halfway between die halfway through die hard 2 die harder which is what it was called (laughs) they jumped the shark oh yeah then it got into like shooting cars at helicopters and mm-hmm. shit mm-hmm. it got real fast in the furious as so many franchises yeah. do but that first die hard is one of the quintessential slaps action movies it's ever. so good mm-hmm. and just to just to fill you guys in john mcclain is an nypd detective who goes to los angeles to try to patch up his relationship with his estranged wife and he shows up um at her um christmas party christmas eve nakatomi tower and he's there and he's hanging out in one of the executive office washroom style places and he's in his slacks and he's in a wife beater and he doesn't have his shoes on and he only has his beretta sidearm and a group of terrorists show up at the nakatomi tower and they take hostage all of the christmas party goers at the office and john mcclane runs out and he ends up saving everybody barefooted in nothing but his slacks and a wife beater the entire movie and what what that i watched it at a very formative age and the john (laughs) mcclain readiness score is this at any given at any given time if you were in a nakatomi tower situation which never is going to happen to any of us well probably we we say that but at the same time it's not safe to go to church or to go to a fucking walmart in texas because you never know when some crazy ass republican in a MAGA hat, he's going to try to shoot the fucking place up. That's a fair so point. There is a chance. There that is a you're chance. You're going to be in a situation like that. We're going to get into an Nakatomi Plaza situation, oh, potentially. Man. the 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 potential for it is much higher mm-hmm. than some. I don't know. I I can't even think of like. Man, a, it was like maybe twenty five. It was maybe thirty years ago. There was a hostage situation at a Luby's in way in colleen texas and a bunch of the hostages got shot and because of that um texas started to revise their concealed carry laws and we're at the point where you could basically carry a rifle you could carry an ar-15 on your back into fucking walmart and no one could tell you anything i'm pretty sure we've seen people do exactly that oh we've seen people we've been we've seen some crazy people in the i am very badass sort of style oh with yeah their guns out where the where they can be but anyway, then uh, we're getting way off. The I subject. know. I remember one time I was at I was back when I was still uh, married. Um, I was at a sandwich shop with my family on a Sunday, and this guy walked in, and he was wearing a polo, tucked in with a belt, with some god awful um, cargo shorts and Grillmaster three thousands. Yeah, that all tracks. And he had a nine millimeter holstered at his waist, and uh, my kid's mom was like, "Doesn't that?" It's so stupid. And I was like, I'm more offended by his shorts than I'm about his about his sidearm, but whatever. If you're going to carry a gun, you can't be dressing like that, my man. Yeah, you're not ready. The readiness score, the John McClane readiness score is, if you're in one of those situations, how 
How ready are you for that? Are you carrying a weapon? Do you have on proper footwear? What kind of clothing are you wearing? Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go personally. Ready, ready, always. We're always ready to go. Anyway. Because we're big fans of Die Hard and we're also very paranoid. We're also very paranoid of all of the magas and the maggots around mm-hmm. here. But anyway, that's that's where that came from. But we were ready. I mean, we just did, we walked in like we were actually like we had rid like we knew what to do when we rode motorcycles. And I yeah. felt really good about that. We were wearing the proper clothing mm-hmm. to uh, to fit in. But it was fun going. Oh my god, I read this article today that a 23-foot reticulated python killed a woman in Indonesia. What the fuck? Yes. Holy okay. shit. So she's got a little cornfield, and she was going out there to check to see if there were any wild boar in her cornfield because they had been eating on her corn, and she had her machete. She was wearing her fucking flip-flops. Oh, it's, all, it's always the flip-flops. That's like a, that that's like a minus 25 right there. Anyway, this python bit her, wrapped her up, killed her, like strangled her, asphyxiated her, Good and Lord. swallowed her whole Good Lord. She didn't come back out for a couple of hours. And so then her her, her daughter raised the alarm and um, the townspeople went to go and find him. And they found this big fucking 23 feet long. That is so many feet. Holy shit. Fucking, and it had this huge bulge. So they killed the they killed the snake and opened it up. And there was her body. It's just insane. Goodness gracious. The world is horrifying. It's horrible. So gross. Do you want to talk about what your mom said about your bike? Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we were coming back in from Houston, and in order to get back to New Braunfels, where we where we live, we had to go past Dylan's mom's house. So, obviously, she wants to see the bike, which is awesome. Was, and you were, you were like, do we have time to go? And I'm like, absolutely, we do. Let's go. Let's go everywhere. If we need to go, I mean, if we need to set a parade, <laughs> let's show everybody right now. So we went by your mom's house. My God. And she says, and I quote, because I pulled out my phone and wrote it. He immediately pulled his phone out and took notes on this. And he said to her, oh, yeah, this is going on the podcast. This is going on the podcast because she says, oh, you're so going to get laid now. I think she said that. But then a little bit later, she also said, um, if If this this doesn't get you laid, nothing will. And then she said, if this doesn't get you laid, you better go gay. Good Lord. (laughs) It's not a thing you can just say. The funny thing about it is, and everybody, everyone agrees on this. If you've ever ridden a motorcycle, don't ever get a motorcycle thinking that you're going to get women with your motorcycle. Because 90% of the time, anytime you see someone else riding a motorcycle, it's going to be another dude. Yeah. So if you get a bike because you want to get laid, you're getting a bike for the wrong reason. You should get a bike because you want a bike and you want to feel cool and powerful and be fun. Like what we want to do. Like what we do. And I got the bike specifically the one that i wanted because i thought it looked cool as fuck and i thought it had a good power to it i loved the look of it and it just so happens that it's a sexy fucking bike to everybody else who sees it oh it absolutely so i got lucky with that but you know what i'm not complaining because i can use all the help i can get tinder really does suck yeah motivation Uh, our motivation is true because we want bikes because we want bikes because we want to ride bikes it's really funny uh when i was looking for a bike and researching i found this guy on youtube named yammy noob and he actually lives in austin which is really close but he does these really funny um comedy sketches sort of like a commentary um and he did one as like the the three types of girlfriends that you get when you have a bike 
And at the time, I didn't have a bike, but the girl that I was dating, Alex, had a bike. She was on her. I think she had a, she had four bikes. She'd had various sizes of uh, sport bikes, and she had a really nice Buell Lightning 1100 cc. Yeah, I remember that bike, motorbike, and it was really nice. And she'd gone to track days. She had a full track suit, the leather suit that looks like a space age. It looks like an astronaut suit out of like you know a science fiction movie with the boots and the helmet and the you know, the pants, the leather and everything like that with this, with the knee pads and everything like that. So she could ride and she knew how to ride. And, uh, I was watching this thing and it was like, you're going to find three, three types of girlfriends. You're going to find the one who says that she's okay with it, but eventually she gets upset because you're spending all your time riding on the weekends when you could be going to the farmer's market with her. And so then she's going to try to persuade you to sell your bike because it's dangerous or because it's too expensive because it is an expensive hobby. That it is, mm-hmm. but at least the gas is not a, as expensive. Right. So. But if you think you're not going to spend money on your bike, I can tell oh, you right you're now. You're going to spend some money. You're going to spend money on the dumbest shit on your bike. I am current. While Jake is talking, I am listening, but I'm also looking actively looking for things for my bike. I know, and I do the same thing. Um, so there's that girl. And then there's the one who is indifferent to it because she has her own things, but that's very, very rare. And then the third type of girl is going to be the one who it piques her interest and then she starts asking you about bikes and then she starts researching bikes and then she decides that she wants to get a bike. Hell yeah. That is also rare. And I sent that to a buddy of mine, one of the guys at the dealership who had bikes before me. Actually, when he first bought a bike, it was a Suzuki SV650, which is what I have. And then he graduated to a Jixer 1000. Um, And he was like, you do realize you're girlfriend number three. And I said, yeah, I understand that. (laughs) (laughs) that's true there are some similarities to that um yep but anyway wow it's really funny um top gun came out oh god like 35 years ago or something a long time ago it came out so long ago but if you've ever watched top gun he rides a i think he rides a kawasaki ninja i don't know what kind of bike he has but he obviously has a sport bike tom cruise has a sport bike in the movie it's a gpz 900 r it's a gpz 900 r the kawasaki ninja yeah and then he rides it and then if he's a fighter pilot for the navy and it's a cool movie, I guess. It's a, you know what's funny about that movie is that um, once that movie came out, the Navy started putting uh, recruiting tables at movie theaters just to catch guys. Oh my god, who were susceptible. And one of my cousins oh, decided, no. I'm going to be Maverick from Top Gun, and he bought himself a Kawasaki Ninja, and he enlisted in the Navy, and then. To make it even worse, he bought himself a green flight jacket, the kind that Maverick wears, and he got, I don't know where he bought, he must have bought his patches like it at a a flea market or something like that, and they were all mismatched, but he had patches all over the arms and all over the back and all over the front, Um, and it looked really funny, and he ended up being like, my dad always made a joke that he was going to end up being like a cook or a or like a like a janitor in the in the in the navy, but he was like a fire control. He was like a third rate fire control officer, whatever. He went to the navy. He did more. He did more active duty than I ever did. But at the same time, um, you know, if you get into it because of that, you're gonna have a bad time. Because <laughs> what ended up happening is he didn't ride his bike as much as he thought he was going to, and then he ended up selling it because they're expensive to up to upkeep. Mm-hmm. But yeah, not everybody goes into it with the mentality that we have and with the the knowledge going forward and it helps me because like i've been around bikes my literally my entire life yeah and my dad's always had a harley exactly so we know we knew what to expect and we also just knew that it was cool as fuck and we really wanted to Mm -hmm. do it 
Yeah, and we're like willing to do stuff like replace the forks on my bike and, you know, look up, hey, how often do we need to change the oil and how often do we need to change the brakes and is this something that we can do on our own and what do we need to do? Because it's, it's awesome. I love it. I love my bike. I love that we went riding. All I can think about is the next time I get to go riding. I know. It's <laughs> all I can think about. I almost went riding for like an hour between the time that I finished work and the time that you came over to record because I was like, I have enough time to go ride for a minute. It was like, oh, I've got some, st- got some shit to do at the house. Yeah, if not for the fact that I have to edit this episode tonight so that we can release it tomorrow, I would go home and immediately go riding again. Mm -hmm. But I'll try and get this done and then just go riding tomorrow. That's right. Dylan, have you ever heard of the power team? I know you haven't. The power team? We follow a TikTok on on uh, on our Too Scared podcast of these guys called the Extreme Mormons. They're hilarious. Oh, God, yes. I don't think they're actually Mormon. Almost certainly not. They're making fun of They're like, we're going to do this for God. We're going to do this for the Mormon church. And they do like really silly stunts. Like they can, they like do mountain biking jumps off of like little plywood ramps and they ride big wheels and they ride skateboards, but it's pretty funny. But okay. Back when I was a kid, there was a group of evangelical bodybuilders called the power team. And these guys were jacked up. I mean, there was no way that these guys were not on steroids because they were so fucking jacked up so so much and they would come through and they would rent out like the civic center and there would be hundreds of people there if not more than that all these people to watch these amazing feats of strength for jesus christ oh boy they were just jacked and the funny thing about it is that their presentation was about three hours long Their feats of strength, if they had done their feats of strength from start to finish without interrupting, would probably have taken somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes. And the rest of the time, they were talking about Jesus and how Jesus had saved their life. And with with God's power, you can do these things. But they would do the craziest things. They would break Louisville slugger bats, wooden bats, over their knee, over their... Over their thighs. That's got to be rip. so bad for your joints. Oh, it's got to be so... I mean, well, they're taking steroids, so they're obviously not really that way. I guess they don't really they care. Would rip, they would rip uh, phone books in half, the big, thick phone books. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, actually, if you don't know what a phone book is. No, I'm kidding. Shut up. No, actually, it is super easy to rip phone books in half. I've done it. And if you go There's back like, and forth. Yeah, and if you just like get it started, then basically you're just tearing each individual page, and once you get it going, it's no problem. They so would, that's not that impressive. Fuck you guys. They would, they would smash like bricks... Like cinder blocks, you know, with their with their forearms, Good they would Lord. blow up. They would blow up hot water balloons until they burst. And they would talk about if we do it the wrong way, and this this air that we're putting in this hot water balloon escapes and and goes back into our lungs, it's gonna burst our lungs. But with the power of Jesus Christ, we're gonna be able to do it. <laughs> that's the stupidest shit I've ever like, heard. That's a far stretch. Like, good Lord, how did you go from point A to number three? You're doing that because you're taking, like, horse steroids. <laughs> and injecting it into and your testicles. Into your testicles. You're not doing it because Jesus Christ is giving you extra strength. That's not Absolutely how this works. Absolutely not. Anyway, it was all it was all there just, just to elicit an emotional response. But I remember going to the power team, and it was just like, it was such a long presentation, but so little of it was actually them doing crazy stuff. Because they would talk about it, and then they'd be like, all right, we're going to have Brother Jeremiah come over here, and he's going to tell you about his about his testimony. And you'd have to listen to a sermon for like 30 minutes. Oh, God. Which still happens. It almost happened earlier. We were sitting here, we were eating pizza, getting ready, and my dad started sending me some, te- oh, some text yeah. messages. And he's like, I found this group and this guy, and he's got a great testimony. I'm like, oh, my God, it's going to start into a sermon. 
It's getting sermony. Oh, it's getting sermony. My dad is always on. He's always ready to start into a sermon, no matter where we are. Anytime, any place, he's just ready to go. He's ready to go. He'll tell you about the Jesus. He absolutely will. Just like me. Oh my God! All right, can we get to, to the horror shit now? Close to you. Get out of That's here. That's what I'm listening to. When Good I. Good Lord. No, I'm listening to Barbara Streisand. That tracks actually. On the corner of my mind. I'm not even sure these are the words. Brightly water-colored memories of the way we were. Anyway. We are at that. 22 minutes Of right nonsense. Now. Of literally I was just nothing. talking to somebody about our podcast, and she was like, she says, what did she say? She says, I really like these guys. I really like this podcast. But they spend like 20 minutes talking about nonsense. And I just want to get, want to get them, want them to get to the spooky stuff. And I said, um, I have a podcast, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> yeah, because we literally spent now almost 23 minutes talking about nothing. Then you can po- listen. Then every time we put into a description, we can put a skip to the skip to the good part. <laughs> Please and we skip can put a timestamp. Time if you want to skip past all the cool stuff that we talk about, the nonsense, cool stuff. The cool. It's not cool. It's not cool. We're talking. We. We're talking about you singing, or it's just you singing. We're not even talking about it. It's just you singing. Listen, you want me to start? I've got a cannibal story. Do you want me to start on this cannibal story? I would love it if you would start on this. All right, fucking listen. Cannibal I'm going to talk to you about a cannibal. Please, okay. Do. So I didn't put you through that 20 minutes of bullshit just to go flaccid on you. <laughs> are we Shit. recording yet all right we're recording again i dropped my phone and it stopped recording right as jake was saying some really graphic shit and i'm about to say it again because i don't care oh good lord listen i did not put you through 22 minutes of foreplay just to go flaccid on you because i came hard for this thing and i'm gonna come hard and i'm gonna penetrate i hate story. literally everything that's listen, happening cut right it now. all out it goes into the b-reel oh jesus Beep. god let me tell you about the forgotten cannibal. The forgotten cannibal? Mm-hmm. His okay. name is Carl Denke. Dinky. I, I, <laughs> Dinky. I don't want to call him Dinky. <laughs> We're going to call him Dinky. He was born in August of 1870 in somewhere uh, in Germany. Oberkunzendorf. It does not matter. Okay. He was a somewhat dull child. He quit school and left home at the age of 12 to work as an apprentice with a gardener. When he turned 25, his father died, and his brother took over the family farm while Carl was given money to buy some land. This is Dinky. He was an unsuccessful farmer, and so he sold the land and bought a house in town. However, the recession forced him to sell this property, too, and he was finally left with a little apartment on the first floor and a small shed in the backyard of this house. Okay. This plays heavily into the end of the story. Oh, no. This is where it all goes bad. Anyway, I found this on Murderpedia, so it's another one of those... um, Life, I, mean, was, I was researching him, and then I found this this one. It's going to be a lot like uh, Jason Massey, where it's written in narrative form, which I really like. Cool. Hope you like it, too. Yeah, I was noticing, like, as I was typing up the notes for mine, mm-hmm. um, I realized how big a fan I am of the cold open, like setting up the scene and then revealing who it is. That's exactly what I did on this one, too. Mm-hmm. I love that shit, man. D- Dinky's first victim was probably Emma Sander, a 25-year-old girl killed in 1909. However... This was only established 15 years later, after Dinky's death. Um, He died on Sunday night of December 1924. Oh, no. This is when they first found out that he was a murderer. 
On December 21st of 1924, at around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, a man covered in blood ran into the local police station. He was visibly terrified and told the officers that it was Carl Dinky who had tried to kill him with a pickaxe. Okay. The police could not believe the stranger. Are you serious? <laughs> what? What? what man comes in covered in blood saying, hey, this specific guy did this to me. This makes me think that the police officers are white. Well. And the guy is black. Probably. I'm surprised they didn't try to shoot him on sight. Anyway. <laughs> God, Derek Chauvin. The policeman could not believe the stranger. Vincent Oliver was a vagabond, while Carl Dinky had a perfect reputation among the inhabitants of Musterberg, where he lived, a town of 9,000 where everyone knew each other. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Stop it. I didn't sing it. I appreciate that. Keep However, talking. You're welcome. However, a doctor confirmed that Oliver must have been attacked with a heavy cutting tool. Really? Yeah, no You needed shit. a doctor to figure this out? The guy had an open wound and he was covered in fucking blood. What else could have happened? Good Lord. Oh, these are the worst police in the world. Oh, probably because he was there was a murderer living amongst them and they didn't know it. Finally, Dinky was arrested. He confirmed attacking Oliver but claimed he was just defending his property from an unknown burglar. A few hours later, Dinky's body was found dead dead in the police station cell Jesus. the well-respected citizen hanged himself using a handkerchief goodness gracious mm -hmm. okay a few days later on december 24th the police went to dinky's house and from here it gets dark hell yeah give it to me dinky okay give it to me dinky in order to describe dinky 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 can't you see oh <laughs> god no in order to describe what they saw there, it is best to refer to the report by, given by Friedrich Petrusky, who was the acting head of the Institute of Legal Medicine. The report dates back to 1926 and was published in the Deutsche Here he was quoted. The first findings made in Dinky's house during the search were bones and pieces of meat. You were just trying to buy bones. This is why you shouldn't. I am actively looking at bones right now on Etsy. Killer. They're going to think you're a serial killer. Eh. If they don't already think you're a serial killer from the way you look, they're going to think you're a serial killer. You got me there. Okay. The the meat was in a salt solution found in a wooden drum. There were altogether 15 pieces with skin, two parts of the breast, which is strongly hairy. The torso is cut through the middle, three fingers above the navel. Its lateral limit is the front shoulder blade. So that went all the way. To, oh, my God. In the piece of the anterior abdominal wall, the middle of the navel is visible. The remaining pieces belong to the side and back parts. The largest is about 40 by 20 centimeters large. Particularly striking was a very clean anus with hand with large parts of both buttocks missing. Oh, well, that's quirky. At least the anus was clean. I guess that's a good thing. We're going to continue with this. The meat is brownish red and does not feel as if the body would have lost much blood. On the back, some soft bluish discoloration is visible as well as liver mortis, which leads to the conclusion that the disassembly of the body took place several, several hours after death. There is no evidence of vital reaction to the bodies to the cuts made, which means that the latter were not made while the victims were still alive. Nevertheless, some skin and muscles from the necks were missing, as well as extremities like the arms and legs, the head, and the sexual organs. Lesions cannot be determined, nor the nature of death or tool of crime. In three medium-sized pots filled with cream sauce, Ew. some cooked meat, 
partially covered with skin and human hair was found. The meat was pink and soft. Well, well. that's unfortunate to hear. I know. All pieces seemed cut from the gluteal area. One pot had only half a portion. Dinky must have eaten the other piece shortly before being arrested. Gross. The last assumption, though logical as it seems, is not proven by facts. So we're not sure whether he actually ate them or not. Because he killed himself before he could be before he could confess. Yikes. Police found some human meat and one portion was visibly gone, but there's nothing to confirm that it was Dinky who had eaten it. Equally equally possible was that he sold that meat or had given it to his guests. However, Petruski points out points to other problems with establishing who actually could have eaten that meat. He says I should like to mention here that there is no evidence that Dinky ever sold the meat of his victims. However, it seems that, s- that certain certain of his guests, um, all of which were vagabonds, were offered meat to eat. Again, this is only an assumption. Why should Dinky rather offer meat to his guests and sell it on the market? By the way, note the interesting fact that Petruski is writing the report over a year after Dinky's death. The legend of selling human meat on the market must have been widespread since the discoveries made in Musterburg, as the forensic feels in duty to refer to it. Then, Petruski continues, in the third pot were found numerous pieces of human skin and parts of the aorta in the gelatinous mass. Oh, gross. A bowl on the table in this room was filled with amber-colored fat that appeared to be human. Biological tests give a weak positive result for the presence of human protein. In the shed in which the meat pieces were found was also a barrel full of bones. Nice. Nice. That were clean of tendons, muscles, etc. That most probably had been priorly cooked. The investigation initially revealed the existence of six human forearms. Good lord. That's so many forearms. I know, which means that obviously it was belonged to three people. Anyway. Another trace. uh, Other traces were found behind the shed. A part of a leg remained in the pond that Dinky had dug many years before, and also skeletal pieces pieces were uncovered in the local forest. Here is a list of what had been sent for examination. Sixteen femurs. Good lord. Of which one pair are remarkably strong. Two pairs of very thin ones, six pairs, and two left femurs. Fifteen medium-sized pieces of long bones. I feel like this is a shopping list for you, you sicko. (laughs) Four pairs of elbow bones. Seven heads of radii. Nine lower parts of radii. Eight lower parts of the elbow. A pair of upper shin bone. A pair of lower elbows and radii, of which extremities still remain well connected. A pair of upper arms and a pair of upper arm heads. A pair of collar bones. Two shoulder blades. Eight heels and ankle bones. 126 toes. God damn. 65 feet and metacarpal bones. Five first ribs. 150 pieces of ribs. Two turtle doves. And a partridge and a (laughs) motherfucking pear tree. tree. Oh my God. Good Lord. All bones, with the exception of a very few, were very light, porous, and fatless. (laughs) This guy was just fucking killing people. Oh my God. And keeping the bones. How do they not call him the bone collector? Whatever. Missed opportunity. God, that would have been cool. God, you shot your shot. In the municipal forest, in the municipal forest remained as well parts of a spine and four parts of a clean dissected male pelvis, which on one side showed traces of saw cutting. Only one piece of head bone was found. This is a piece of the inferior, inferior 
petrosol sinus area jagged on the front side. It looks broken and bears visible signs of sharp sawing on its point. This piece of bone is cross-marked with ink. Given the size and condition of the bones, we can assume that there was one particularly strong individual. Two others were of delicate bone structure and others and another suffered from coxivara. I don't know what that is. I didn't Google it. Doesn't matter. The cutting surfaces of the bones are jagged as if blunt force was applied, such as the blunt end of an axe or a hammer. Goodness <laughs> gracious. Some bones were visibly sawed. Few spots shows traces of a sharp tool and axe, most probably. Similarly, such traces are found on the articulations, which must have been cut with a knife. So, you ever deboned a chicken or carved a turkey? No. Well, no. You go after the joints, like the leg and the wing. You go at it at the joint, and this guy did the same thing. Oh. Well, that's cool. At least he made it easy for himself. Mm -hmm. Based on these findings, we were able to declare that the bones sent to us belong to at least eight people. Of course. Yeah, obviously. Mm -hmm. Other bones were yet to be uncovered over the years to come. The last pieces, including head bones, were found all the way into the late 1940s, just after World War II. Goodness gracious. They were found by people who came and lived back in that house, uh, some Polish immigrants. Oh, that would suck. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Considerably more revealing was Dinky's dental collection. We Ooh. received a total of 351 teeth. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. These were found in a money bag and in two tin boxes, of which pepper and salt was written, as well as in three paper bags, which were destined to keep pepper. Oh, my God. Wow, that's really something. Oh, <laughs> they were partially sorted according to their size. The molars were in the money bag, while the others in the two boxes and in the paper bag. In yet another paper bag were teeth that belonged probably to a single person, and in the third bag, three lower incisors were found with a strongly atrophic structure. This one probably came from an old individual. Mm. All teeth, with the exception of six, were well preserved. The investigation led us to very notable results. The remains of the bones were definitely of a minimum of eight victims. However, other circumstances of the case make it likely that the number of victims was much higher. The teeth that were found belonged to certainly to at least 20 people. Professor Euler noted, however, that some individual teeth appear more than twice as often that is statistically expected. So, yeah, it's like there's too many, like if you sort them out. Mm -hmm. But that suggests that there might have been even more victims than what they think. The fact that the majority of victims suffered from cavities leads us to think that the number of victims was higher. In addition, it must be stated that people in old age lack proper dental treatment back in the 20s. Yeah. So you could have killed some that didn't have any teeth. Professor Euler estimates cautiously that teeth belong to at least 25 individuals. The extractions, taking the teeth out of the skull, yeah, were done in different ways. Oh, boy. Some teeth seem to have been taken out quite easily due to senile atrophy. Okay. While others were rather solidly rooted and extracted with force. Ooh. In many cases, we discerned parts of the um, alveolar wand. I don't know what that is. Didn't Google it. Some specimens, especially the molars and premolars, so fractures in tooth enamel that couldn't have, couldn't have occurred during victim's lifetime. So some of them got cracked when he was bringing them out. On some, there are traces of claws with very sharp edges. The appearance of some roots seemed to justify the assumption that the jaw had been cooked in advance. Individual teeth have been broken, probably in the process of extraction. Oof. Here we go. 
It's even worse. Especially interesting is the answer to the question of the age of the victims. From the list later mentioned, we know nearly all victims. There are no young individuals among them. Now there are four wisdom teeth that clearly came from the same people or individual that have peculiarities usually found on the teeth of a 50-year-old person. The investigation of the other teeth showed that at least four-fifths of the victims were seniors. Professor Euler summarized that among the victims, there was certainly one person who was not older than 16 years old. While the majority were significantly older than 40 years, two individuals were probably 20 to 30 years old and one between the 30th and 40 year, 40th year of his life. So he's overpowering older people to do this. The tests did not give satisfactory results concerning the sex of the individuals nor their jobs. For obvious reasons, nothing specific can be said about the time that elapsed after their death. What is certain is only that some teeth have been extracted years ago. The pulling out of the teeth of young people must have taken place many weeks ago. In any case, the study of the teeth brought much more information regarding the number and age of the victims than could be learned strictly from the bones, but it must be taken into consideration that the latter were only partially recovered, the teeth or the, the bones. Next part of the report is concerning with findings that didn't seem to have anything in common with the transformation of human tissue, the decomposition. Mm. Nevertheless, fur nevertheless, further investigation revealed that Dinky experimented with hu human leather and soap making based on human fat. Uh, fight Club. Mm -hmm. The yardstick of civilization. Although his methods remained utterly primitive. Among, Dinky, among Dinky's suspenders, here we go with the Ed Gein, Three pairs were made of human skin. There are about Boy, six. Howdy. They are about six centimeters wide and seventy centimeters long. The leather is not smooth and at one spot broken. It seems not tanned, but only free of subskin tissue and dried. At one spot, it is obvious that he made the cuts under the nipples, which are still cl clearly visible. Four are patched with human skin taken from the pubic area. Some traces of louse knits were also discerned under microscope. All suspenders show traces of use, and one of them, Dinky, was found on... Ow! One of the suspenders he was wearing when he was arrested and committed suicide. He was wearing a human skin suspender. Oh, no! Mm -hmm. Oh, no! Okay, here we go. But besides suspenders, Dinky also had leather straps cut out of human skin that he treated with shoe polish and parts of which were sewn together with pieces and rags of cloth. Many of these laces were made of human hair. One sample was one centimeter long, gray-white, and according to the study, was taken from the head. So he also made little rope laces out of oh, hair. Oh, how cute. From which area of the body came other pieces that cannot be said. In addition to various old clothes which were in the, which were in the apartment, there were 41 large and small bundles of rags bent together with straps. The investigation led to no results considering these old worn-out clothes. So were they from his victims? We don't know. Maybe he's just a hoarder. Equally strange was Dinky's collection of coins. These consist of round, flat, unfired clay pieces, sizes ranging from, you know, one size to this, blah, 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 blah. There were a large number of ID cards and private papers of several persons were found there in his room, as well as account books on revenue from the garden, on working hours, and so on. So he's like keeping records of shit. They were relatively well-managed and clear. More attention was attached to, to some loose sheets of paper on which names of 30 men and women appear. In front of every name, there is a date, probably the date of the death of the person. At number 31, there is only a date. The record is chronological. Numbering starts at only at number 11. In case of women, only the first name is indicated. The notes for men are much more detailed, usually with the date of birth, place of stay, and status of the person concerned. The assumption 
that this is the list of victims is justified by the fact that ID cards found in Dinky's room belong to people whose whereabouts cannot be identified otherwise. By the appearance of the sheets, we can assume that this list was not made in one day. On one side of these sheets are the initials of the name followed by a number, which is most likely indicates the weight of the person concerned. On another slip of paper next to the name stands what follows. Dead, 122. Naked, 107. Disemboweled, 83. This last figure is then repeated next to the name of the person concerned in the last table. Creepy, creepy, creepy. Goodness gracious. The fact that it went on for so long and nobody caught on. Nobody knew right up until literally the very end. Until the very end. When some guy walked into the police station with a gaping head wound and said, I've been attacked with a pickaxe. Speaking of the pickaxe, Dinky had in his possession in his little shed three axes, a large wood saw, a tree saw, a pickaxe, and three knives. All of these were seized uh, by the police with the exception of the axes and the tree saw, which were sent to be tested for traces of human blood. The saw is a large tool, which with as the microscopic examination revealed, also wood had been sewn. So, sawn. He was using it for wood, and he was using it for humans. The detection of human blood succeeded. However, we suppose that he used much finer tools, probably the tree saw, to cut heads and pelvic bones. The pickaxe was used for the last assassination attempt, and human blood can be seen on this tool as well. As for knives, we cannot make all things clear. So they weren't sure. Then, Dr. Petruski's report continues with information about Dinky himself, but these are pretty scarce. The killer had a reputation of being a good, if somewhat reclusive citizen. As a child, he was believed to be dull, like I said. Um, He wasn't able to learn, and he didn't speak until the age of six. Um, Teachers declared him an idiot and often punished him. He was very obstinate and lacked respect for teachers, they noted. As an adult, he was treated with suspicion, but rather because of his solitary sag- status and sexual indifference. He was said to be neither man nor woman, so he never showed any interest for anybody. He's yeah. too busy killing people. Yeah. He's got things on his head. He's got other pro- He's got other things to worry about. He's an artist. He's focusing on his craft right now. He's focusing on his craft. He's trying to make a name for himself. And he did. Oh, he did. His family stated that he never shown signs of, that he never showed signs of fear or disgust. However, he had no violent temper, they thought. He had accepted their invitation only once, but it was memorable. His brother recalled that Carl Dinky had eaten two pounds of meat at his house. Oh. He called him a glutton. Nevertheless, Carl's good manners, humble behavior, and occasional charity earned him the nickname of Father Dinky in town. Ew. Father Dinky. I don't want to... Who's making think- suspenders out of skin. Yeah, Father Dinky's skin suspenders. Mm-hmm. So all we really know about him comes from documents or sparse remarks from his relatives and co-citizens made only after his death. This can't be. People always say these things. His crimes are not motivated sexually, and his conduct seems rather rational. From all information that we have, we can assume that he was extremely that he was an extremely selfish, dull man, unable to distinguish moral categories, obviously. Probably he didn't mean to harm people, but his need for food was primordial. After a series of failures at school, farming, and business, he found a simple and effective means of procuring food by killing vagabonds he met at the train station. He could gain their trust quite easily and take them home virtually unnoticed because the train station was a short walk from his place and both were on the outskirts of town. So he's doing it because he's hungry and he doesn't have anything else to eat? Holy shit. Good lord. God. Go to a fucking McDonald's, bro. Oh, my God. Of all cities that needed a, sh- a soup kitchen. 
<laughs> oh, no. At the end, we shall also ask one pertinent question. How could Dinky's crimes be perpetrated for at least 15 years completely unnoticed by anyone in Munsterberg, including his neighbors? And symptoms were abundant. Yeah, no fucking shit. Fucking obviously. Mm-hmm. Sometime before Vincent's Oliver escaped the killer in extremis. At least two men managed the same, but they didn't report the fact to police. They just got the fuck out of Dodge. And why wouldn't you? Once, an apprentice covered in blood ran out of Dinky's apartment. He was never heard of again. I would have... If you escape a cannibal, you know what you do? You leave the fucking country. <laughs> you run. That's one of those far, where you're like, I promise away. you, I swear to you on my mother's grave, that if you let me out of this house, I will tell no one and you will never hear from me again. You will never hear from me. You will never hear from me again. This guy... My entire bloodline has moved to the other end of the world now. Don't even trip. Oh, my God. I just can't even imagine. I mean, it'd be like, oh, you're going to spend the rest of your life looking over your shoulder. Okay, that was one guy. Sometime later, a vagabond complained to Dinky's neighbors that he had been asked to write a letter and soon after found himself with a chain on his neck. But he was stronger than Dinky and made his way outside. Nobody reported these things to the police? God. Other facts occurred as well. For instance, repeated complaints of Dinky's neighbors about a strong, penenetrating smell from his apartment. Yeah, no kidding. That's like the Jeffrey Dahmer files. Yeah, exactly. Where everybody what I was knew. Thinking. It's like the smell was unbelievable. And mm. I remember one of the the Jeffrey Dahmer files. I hope it's still on Netflix. It's so good to watch. If you haven't watched it, you need to watch it on Netflix. Um, one of the uh, one of the homicide detectives was like, "There is a distinct smell of human rotting flesh." Oh that, no! That once you smell it you'll never i mean you'll be able to pick up on it for the rest of your life nothing smells that way and he says i walked into that apartment complex i was he lived like on the second floor he said i walked in on the first floor and i immediately smelled it and i knew oh my god mm -hmm. oh that's horrifying mm -hmm. the neighbors noticed as all the neighbors noted as well he always had plenty of meat even in the worst period of inflation they assumed however it was dog meat so gave little attention to it even though the black market slaughter of dogs was illegal nor the buckets of blood he poured into the courtyard made them think about this what what buckets of blood and nobody thinks anything man it's hard out here on these streets i fuck i guess so man he was often heard hammering and sawing at night, but no neighbor would become suspicious. After all, he was preparing the he was preparing the dishes to be sold at the morning market. Oh yeah, there's that. There's that. Again, it's this rumor that he sold the meat. It is quite remarkable as well that he was probably often seen going out at night with large, heavy bags and returning home with empty hands. Sometime later, what was he doing? What was in the bags? Why at night? Where did the old garments and shoes go? Was he selling them? He was selling them. Old garments and shoes. It seems plausible that some neighbors were suspicious about Dinky, but as long as nobody from town was hurt, he remained safe. And he got away with it for 15 years. 15 fucking years! And then hanged himself. Because they said, oh, it's okay, it's not me. As long as it's not me. God. <sighs> okay, cool, crazy. I guess. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Jesus. That is the story of Carl Dinky, the Forgotten Cannibal. 
Boy, howdy. That was... That's even better than Ed Gein. Everybody talks about Ed Gein. I know. Oh, Ed Gein gets all this press. Ed Gein did this. Ed Gein... Ed Gein never ate anyone. And he never killed anyone. He was a grave robber. Well, he killed one person. Ed Gein does not deserve the crown that he holds. Oh, Ed Gein is a... He's a he's an inspiration for Hannibal Lecter. Carl Dinky's the real fucking deal right here. Yeah, no shit. This guy deserves... Ed Gein made a nipple belt. This dude had human suspenders. He had and bags of teeth. Fucking, oh, man. And bones. Oh, I love it. Oh, he should be up there with Dahmer. Oh, yeah, 100%. Carl Dinky. But the problem is nobody wants to say the serial killer, Dinky. Oh, you know, that's his problem. He should have had a cooler name if he, he was going to be a serial killer. He has an unfortunate name. That's what happened to him. R.I.P. Doesn't sound near as cool as Ed Gein. Mm-hmm. Carl Dinky. Carl Dinky. All right, that's it. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Dylan's topic. Boy, howdy. And we have returned. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, as I mentioned, I am a big fan of the cold open, so uh, we're just going to jump right into a little narrative journey here, Jake, and I hope you're ready for this. On the night of May 23rd, 1918, Catherine and Joseph Maggio, along with Joseph's brothers, decided that after a long day of work and catching up with the family, they'd turn in for the night in their respective rooms. And as the night fell on and they fell further into sleep, a strange noise was being made downstairs. Oh god, here we go. The bottom right panel of the kitchen door was being cut away, and through the hole steps a large man dressed in black. And not a creature was stirring throughout the night. Oh my god. Uh, he takes a moment to survey the scene. He looks around the house until he finds what he's looking for. Mm, I don't like this. A straight razor and a large axe. What the fuck? Those were already in the house? Yes. Oh, how serendipitous. Carrying his tools, he creeps further into the house, checking through rooms until he stumbles onto the bedroom of Joseph and Catherine. He sees them laying in bed together sound asleep. He walks up to their bed slowly and quietly. And as he readies his weapon, the only sound you hear is the wet, meaty wax of his axe burying itself into the bodies of Joseph and Catherine. Before they even have enough time to think or scream, the blade finds its home in their necks and torsos. Oh, man. And to finish the job, he draws his straight razor deep into the throats of the husband and wife. Between the razor and the axe, Catherine is nearly decapitated. Wow. And the Axeman of New Orleans sets down the bloody axe in their rooms and makes his way home, leaving the bodies to be discovered by Joseph's brothers the next morning. Talking about the New Orleans Axeman, baby! And all that jazz! And all that jazz! Yes! I fucking love this guy! Oh, bring it! Bring Hell it! I'm yeah. so excited. I'm way... I am disproportionately <laughs> excited to the gruesomeness of this story. Oh yeah, man! So we are breaking down the timeline in the bizarre and dramatic serial killer of 1918's New Orleans, The Axeman. Which they talked about in that one season of American, American Horror, Horror Story, Story Coven. He was portrayed by Danny Huston, who did a great job, and I love Danny Huston. Houston. Is it Houston? It's Angelica Houston is his cousin? Sister. Oh, oh, yeah. By Danny Houston. I like it. So the Axeman was well known for attacking the residents of New Orleans, Louisiana for about a year and a half during the years 1918 and 1919. 
Uh, it is said he struck exclusively at night while his victims were sleeping in bed, and he only ever used what he could find in the victims' houses at murder we- as murder weapons. It's fucking MacGyver, this guy. And it was usually an axe that he would discard at the scene of the crime. Like, he would find the axe in the house, mm-hmm. kill him with it, just leave it there. Yeah. That's a baller move. That's a baller move. Could be the move. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and during the span of his less than two years, it's believed that he is responsible for up to 12 different attacks and six killings. Oh, man. Bum, 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 bum. That's nice. Yeah. I'm way too excited about this. <laughs> I know. Me too. This is what I've spent all day doing research on. So the murder of Catherine and Joseph is the first suspected attack of the Axeman. Axeman. And only a month later, on June 28th of 1918, he struck again. This time attacking uh, Louis Bessemer and Anna Lowe. They were found gravely injured and bleeding out by a baker who was making his usual delivery rounds. When the police arrived, they saw that the bottom panel of the door had been removed and a bloody axe was left near the bodies. Oh, God. However, However, this couple was actually still alive when they were found, unlike the first victims. And... Lewis ended up surviving the attacks, while Anna survived almost two months before eventually succumbing to her massive injuries. Oh, that's horrible. Yes. Okay, while they were in the hospital, um, Lewis was able to tell the police that when they were attacked, what he saw was the, uh, a large white man with an axe. Um, that was all that he got in terms of the information he described as a large white man with an axe or a hatchet that attacked them that doesn't really narrow it down for us lewis not at all no thank you lewis um but it did get police attention on the case and here's where this particular murder gets a little bit weird so as they were doing some investigation in the house checking over the crime scene and talking to both lewis and anna they've um, due to Lewis's supposed affiliation or direct involvement with German spies what? due to some mysterious evidence that the police found espionage along with a supposed testimony from Anna saying that Lewis was a Nazi spy Lewis was charged with the murder of his wife Anna even though he was clearly also almost killed in that same attack Um, But eventually he was acquitted of the charges and did not stay in jail. But regardless of his evil affiliations, it does definitely seem like the work of the Axeman. And it just seems like law enforcement kind of wanted to clean it up and give an easy target to blame so that they didn't have to keep looking into it. But it's a little bit weird. The Axeman attacks and it turns out that this dude is a Nazi spy, I guess. Um, Let's see. So after that one... Again, only about a month afterwards, this time on August 5th of 1918, the Axeman struck again. He snuck into the home of a pregnant Mrs. Schneider. Uh, He took the axe from their tool shed and severely wounded her, striking her repeatedly with the axe. Okay. However, he left her alive and bleeding on the floor of her home, and she was found unconscious by her husband, who rushed her to the hospital. It's reported that she survived this attack, and only a week later, she successfully gave birth. Because she was pregnant at the time. Oh my so, god. a week after getting attacked by a psycho with an axe, she gives birth, and then both her and the baby ended up surviving. <sighs> he tried to murder a pregnant lady? I'm not, I'm not okay with this. Yeah! 
That's not a baller move, Axeman. That one's not a baller move, my friend. Um, now, with that one, they or most of these murders, you can actually find the addresses of them. Um, I was watching, I think it was the BuzzFeed Unsolved about him. Um, and they, they go and like look at the different places. I think one of the houses is torn down. Um, but most of them are still up, and you can take a look and see what like what the houses look like where these people were killed. However, the home address was never given for this particular case. Hmm. So no idea what happened to them afterwards or where exactly it took place, but it was just another one that happened within Louisiana. Now, after that attack, uh, which was August 5th, the next attack happened only five days later. This one was Joseph Romano, a quiet 80-year-old family man, was heard struggling in his home, only to be found by his nieces shortly afterwards with massive injuries, including his head being almost bashed in. However, he was still alive when the attack ended. Unfortunately, he only lasted another two days before he passed away. However, his nieces reportedly saw the attacker. They described him as a tall, dark, heavy-set man who was wearing a dark suit and hat. Okay. Still incredibly vague. Um, they said that he was reported fleeing from the home, uh, and he ran away before anybody was able to catch up to him. But given this new piece of information from the girls and further police attention, uh, the cases started making waves throughout New Orleans, yeah. eventually getting into the newspapers eventually eventually yeah <laughs> got ourselves a serial killer here it's been months now but it's now getting into the newspapers um so the local newspaper printed that in light of the recent attacks armed civilians and additional police units would be watching the streets and keeping an eye on their families mm -hmm. uh, keeping an eye out for suspicious activity and working hard to find who is responsible for the mysterious axe murders and for a few months, this tactic actually worked. The Axeman laid low and patrols went on. Until seven whole months later, in March 10th of now 1919, the Axeman grew tired of waiting and struck again. This time coming after Rose and Charles, uh, can't pronounce their last name, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, but this time there was a complication as Rose woke up during the night to the sound of her husband and Charles, or her husband Charles and the Axeman beating the shit out of each other. Uh, there was a massive fight ensuing. Unfortunately for them, Charles couldn't hold them off forever. Uh, and after the attack on Charles, the Axeman turned his attention to Rose and their two-year-old daughter Mary. No! Yes. Come on, man. He proceeded to attack them both, and after a long stretch in the hospital, Rose and Charles would survive, but their infant daughter Mary would not. Oh, fuck. Yep. I'm not okay with this. Yeah, I can see that excitement dwindling out of your eyes. Um, less than a week after this attack, a local, a local newspaper received a mysterious letter addressed to them from the Axeman. And I'm going to read you that letter, Jake. Here we go. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen of New Orleans. So this is marked uh, March 13th, 1919, from hell. All right, and the letter is as follows. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether which surrounds your earth, 
I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fell demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come again and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue, except perhaps my bloody axe, besmeared with the blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way in which they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid so as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than for them to incur the wrath of the Axeman. Oh my god. I don't think that there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure that your police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise, and know who to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orlinians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished to, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Oh, wow. Now to be exact, at 12.25 o'clock, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to the people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose house a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then so much better for the people. One thing is certain, and that is, some of the persons who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. I love the use of jazz it use jazz as a verb (laughs) well as i am cold and crave the warm of my native tartarus and as it is about time that i have left your homely earth i will cease my discourse wow this guy this guy this fucking guy hoping that thou wilt publish this that it may go well with thee I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that has ever existed either in fact or the realm of fancy. Signed, The Axeman. Ain't that some dramatic-ass shit? That's some goth shit right there. That's cool as fuck, right? Tartarus? Oh my god, From hell? Yeah. Jazz as a verb? Jazz as a verb, baby. Oh my god. 100%, this guy had his own jazz band. (laughs) <laughs> and this whole thing was about getting more people with gigs That's all it was about <laughs> it's definitely a possibility oh man this fucking guy so there's actually a jazz song that was inspired by this letter um give me one moment let me see if i can find it again real quick uh, it's we'll just play it right here. it's just piano we'll probably um, it right but here. it is called don't scare me papa this is by Joseph John Davila. Yeah, so we'll go ahead and play a clip of that real quick for you.
it's got a catchy tune. Uh-huh. It's yeah, it it it's a little funky. I'm not gonna lie, um, but yeah, that was a song inspired by this letter and by this whole event. So it's pretty cool. Um, now let's see. So after this letter, um, on the night of March 19th, which was the aforementioned Tuesday. The entire city was alive with the sound of jazz from people's homes, businesses, bars, restaurants, jazz clubs, anywhere people could gather and be safe and play jazz was buzzing. The city was alive and booming with the sounds of jazz, enough so that the Axeman did not strike that night. Nobody was killed by the Axeman. Wow. Much to the relief of everyone in New Orleans, obviously. Um, But the Axeman was not done yet. He gave the city the night off, but on August 10th, he got right back into it. What a jerk. Yeah, that's a little rude. But he did give him a little bit of time before he got back into the killing. But this time, Steve Boca, who was resting comfortably in his bed that night, woke up to the feeling of a large man next to his bed Not plunging cool. an axe into his sleeping body. Oh my god. Boca, however, was able to fight back for a little while, continuing to sustain injuries, including some massive blows to the head. However, he was able to escape, and he crawled to the neighbor's house to get the police on the phone and get medical attention for himself. Boca ended up surviving this attack, but when questioned by police uh, and doctors, he couldn't remember any of the details of what happened due to the massive trauma, massive brain trauma in the attack. Unfortunately, this led to no new information the police, uh, for the police to use, allowing the Axeman to strike again that same month. No. This time, he crawled into the home of Sarah Lawman, a 19-year-old girl, and repeatedly struck her with an axe, also hitting her head multiple times, leading again to severe brain injury and loss of memory. The Axeman once again left her home before killing her, leading her to survive the attack, but with no memory of who attacked her or what happened during the fight. That's terrible. Yeah. But now we are in to the final attack. Hope you're ready for it, Jake. Ready to go. Story is winding down here. I've had some attacks, had some kills, had some getaways, some good times, some bad And then finally, in late October, Esther and Mike Pepitone woke up around 1 a.m. to the brutal attack from what some believe to be the Axeman. However, this final attack is up for debate as to whether or not it was actually part of the Axeman's assault on the city, or if it was perhaps some sort of mob hit. Ooh. Because Mike Pepitone's father had killed somebody, and they believe that it had some mob connections. So, there is a little bit of question as to whether or not this particular one was actually an Axeman attack. But we don't know. But one of the odd things about this attack is that when Esther ran down the stairs to safety, she supposedly saw two men attacking her husband. And she managed to get to safety without the quote-unquote Axeman even bothering to pursue her. But her husband Mike was struck in the head almost 20 times. This time, it was from a large piece of circus equipment that was stolen from the circus down the road. And he ended up dying two hours later. But Esther had later told police that she did believe that it was the Axeman or someone similar. They just thought it was weird that there was an additional person there. 
but with them just going after Mike and not bothering to bother Esther, uh, it did seem like Mike was being targeted and that this was not a random act of violence. But unfortunately, nobody knows for that. Or nobody knows for sure. And after that, the Axeman was never heard from again. Mm -hmm. He was never caught, never killed. He only stopped because he felt like it. Jazzy Jazz Axeman. <laughs> yeah, man. Killed some babies, attacked some pregnant women, attacked some other people. Just crazy shit all around. Came from hell, needed to get back to Tartarus. Yeah. Now, there is a lot of there are a lot of theories as to who the Axeman was. Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple pretty strong cases. There are some not-so-strong cases. There are some people that do believe that he was some sort of vengeful spirit or angry spirit that could slip into the house through small cracks and then grow to a full-sized human man's shape and attack them and then just fade away like a mist. Which is significantly cooler. Oh, yeah. Than just an angry dude with an axe. <laughs> and just an angry white guy with an axe. But man, that fucking letter was cool as shit. I love that thing. That was a good letter. Yeah. Had some flair. He's got some style. He's got admit. He's got a little bit of the dramatic to him. He's a little bit of a performer. He likes to set the scene. Likes to get it right. I relate to that. I just don't like that he killed a two-year-old daughter. I'm not okay with that. That one is a bit of a bummer. I will give you that. But he didn't kill the pregnant woman. No, I guess not. He tried, though. I guess you could say that he did try. That was a good one. <laughs> Hell yeah. So that was the New Orleans Axeman. Thank you all for coming to my TED Talk. Ooh, so terrible. We love it. It's exactly what we're here for. Well, on that note, uh, I will say if you guys are interested, we have a couple different merch designs on our Redbubble. We've got our Too Scared to Sleep podcast uh, Patreon. We've got email, we've got Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. Uh, we could make a MySpace if that would get you guys to interact with us. Whatever makes you happy. MySpace still exists in some form or another. Yeah, it does. <sighs> Mostly used by musicians, but you know what? We're putting our own sweet siren songs out there. Oh my god. I bet we could fit in. <laughs> Just one more thing to have to check. Yeah, honestly. But anyway, we've got a lot of different social media. If you guys want to support us financially, you can. We would love that. If you guys just want to talk to us, let us know. We'll send you spooky videos. You can send us spooky stories. Uh, if you guys don't, you know, care for any of that, but maybe you still like the show, let some people know about us. You know, we would like some more listeners, more friends, more people in the Insomniac Network. That's right. The Insomniac Network. You can tell grows. your friends they will be part of the exclusive Insomniac Network. That sounds cool as fuck. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? That's right. Damn straight. It's a lot of fun. It's very cool. We're very fun. We're neat people. You can look at our social media and see us talk way too much about ghosts and boomer and motorcycles yep. and it's fucking awesome I, I i think so anyway i would agree i have a lot of fun with it yes me too but anyway that's how you can reach us that's how you can support us thank you all for coming to the show today drive safe you don't have to go home but you can't stay here no you can't because i need to go to sleep sometime <laughs> he's very tired and boomer's got all the space in that bed there's no room for anyone else sorry <laughs> ah sweet boomer all right guys thank you so much for listening 
Don't forget to like and subscribe. Join the Insomniac Network and hail Satan. Hail Satan. That's right. So for my buddy Dylan, this is Jake. We hope we've left you too scared to sleep. I'm the buddy now. <laughs>